Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There is a poll out that was written about at great length to great effect today in the National Post. And it says the number of people in this country who are identifying as suffering from anxiety is going through the roof. According to this study that was done of thousands of people in this country, 1,500 people were asked about this, 41% say they are diagnosed as having anxiety. Now, a third, so 33% of people are saying they are actually formally diagnosed, and a third also is saying that they are on some sort of prescribed antidepressants. I'm assuming probably that third is the same third. But when you start to realize that we're closing in on half of Canadians saying that they are battling with anxiety, that is a stunning number. And the same word, different use, it's a depressing number, not in the depression official depression side of things, but boy, oh boy, what is going on when nearly half of Canadians say that they are now dealing with anxiety? Dr. Catherine Mancini is an associate professor in the Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences Department at McMaster. She is also a psychiatrist at the Anxiety Treatment and Research Clinic at St. Joseph's Healthcare. She joins us now. Doctor, thanks for doing this today. No problem. Uh, When you hear numbers like this, this sounds like we are a really, really, really overwhelmed people. So the numbers haven't actually changed. We've had a number of different uh, epidemiological studies that have been done in the U.S. in particular, and those numbers are pretty much in keeping with what has been found since the 1990s. So I don't think there's been any increase, actually. It may be that people are more aware of anxiety disorders now, but certainly in terms of community studies, the numbers haven't changed over the last number of years. So since the 90s, we've had levels that are this high? Well, the numbers are sort of between 15 and 30 percent in, you know, a number of these studies. So, I mean, what we're seeing right now might be in the higher end, but these are actually diagnosable anxiety disorders that are up to 30 percent of the population in these studies. So really, Things haven't changed that much in the last number of years. Has anything changed in the fact that while it would be one thing for someone to go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist or to hear someone give them an official diagnosis, it seems as though a lot of other people now are adding this label to themselves, though. Is that is that just because we are now aware of it, or is there something else going on? Well, I think we are more aware of it, and I'm sure social media plays a, a huge role in that. Um, you know, I think people do they often come to my office already diagnosing themselves with whatever anxiety problem they have so i think you know the information is out on uh the internet and people are you know becoming much more aware so i think that's a good part of the problem now so do you think these people and again i'm not talking about the people necessarily who are diagnosed by a professional but the people who are simply identifying do you think they they truly are, or it, or are we misunderstanding what anxiety by the definition really is? Well, I think, you know, anxiety is prevalent. We all have anxiety, and, and a certain amount of anxiety is, you know, pretty healthy. It sort of drives us to uh, perform well, or, you know, in students, they'll study harder if they're anxious before an exam. And it's, you know, so I think anxiety 
that word is tossed around a lot, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you know the person has a, a clinical anxiety disorder. Um, it's tossed around negatively more often than not, though. Often, and I and I mean I think we do have pressures that um, people are responding to maybe more so than they did in the past because I think there's a higher expectation now, and and again I think social media has a lot to do with it. People. Um, you know, are more easily disappointed when life doesn't go the way they want. Uh, and I think that they, you know, use, they misuse the word and, you know, identify that as being anxiety or anxiety not having accomplished what they think they should be accomplishing. So unhappy can sometimes be anxiety. I, well, I think people do use that, those two words interchangeably, and they often go hand in hand, right? So people who are depressed are often anxious, and I think people who are unhappy are often anxious as well. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. What really strikes me about this is we have more experts now, we have more awareness, we have more treatment, we have more people doing things to try to make it so that people don't have to have mental health issues or anxiety. Shouldn't these numbers then be dropping rather than holding or even going up? Well, I think anxiety disorders are um, very heritable. So, you know, 40% (laughs) Uh, the population has an anxiety disorder, or 30%, then, I mean, you know, we do pass um, along our genetic material. So it, you know, stands to reason that the numbers would stay relatively consistent. Um, we do have treatments, and, you know, many people avail themselves of that, of those treatments, but a lot of the disorders tend to be chronic. And I'm talking mm. about, you know, people with clinical anxiety disorders. So they tend to be disorders that don't really, you know, they don't really go away. I mean, they improve, but they do tend to wax and wane over time. So, um, you know, under stress, they may become more, you know, more problematic again. Because the reason I ask is because one of the experts who's quoted in the National Post story today about this, and I thought it was a really interesting Mm -hmm. position to take, says that he really believes that it, it is society's push and expectation, modern society's expectation that you are going to be happy, that you're going to be on social media, that you're going to, your friends are going to envy your level of happiness in your life and you're not going to look at them and be envious. He's, he's saying our expectations of where we should be in 2018 are what's causing a lot of this. Well, I think that would be true of people who, you know, don't have a diagnosable anxiety disorder. So I think, you know, individuals who talk about being anxious without actually having the disorder, then I think that, you know, may hold true that society's expectations and person's expectations, you know, of themselves and what they should have at any given time, I think that I I would agree with him. Because once upon a time, and and I don't want to go, you know, all old, old, Mm -hmm. old school Mm -hmm. here, but uh, once upon a time, is it fair to say that people expected hardship in their life, expected there were going to be difficult times? And I don't know that we necessarily have that same sensibility today, whether that's leading to anxiety or not. But I think that our expectations of life may be different than people 20, 30, 40 years ago. Well, I think the expectations, and I also think that we haven't been teaching resilience well. So, you know, I think that parents um, aren't 
allowing their children to struggle as much or to try to figure things out for themselves. So I think when they are faced with difficulties, they don't have the the coping skills to be able to deal with, you know, some of the, the difficulties that might come their way. It's an interesting suggestion because I was thinking uh, in about a week and a half, we're going to be celebrating the end of the, the 100th anniversary of the end of World War One. Uh, if you're going to have tough times, I think having a kid or having being in World War I, anything like that, those are difficult times. If you're going to have anxiety, to me, that's when you have anxiety. He, now, if the person you don't like wins an election, we go into a PTSD thing and we have to have coloring rooms and petting dogs for some people at universities. Now, I'm not mocking the people who truly have anxiety, but it does seem like our tolerance for some things has changed. And, and like I said, it's resi- the resilience, like the ability to be able to figure things out for, the, for ourselves without, you know, having to have um, someone else do it for us or not to have to do it at all, I think is a, is a big issue. There are those, and I, I'm sure you've heard this before, there are those who wonder how much of this is fully legit and how much of this is an industry because certainly the pharmaceutical industry has benefited or has grown because of what has been diagnosed. We have a lot of people now working in the mental health, the anxiety, the depression industry. Is there anything to that? Is there anything that this is something that the industry requires people to be this way? I'm not sure I can comment on that. That. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of anxiety disorders, I think they are very prevalent and they do require treatment, particularly in, you know, in patients who actually have clinical anxiety disorders. So I think in the past, we didn't have the, the treatments and we do now. And I think that that has allowed a lot of people who have, you know, true anxiety disorders to actually, you know, get the treatment they need. So I would never say that, you know, it's an industry that's not necessary. Um, you know, I think it's there may be some offshoots that are questionable, but in terms of, you know, people who practice um, good, you know, clinical skills and, and uh, evidence-based skills, I think that, you know, it's a necessary treatment, and I think it has provided a lot of relief for many people. Can we ever, though, expect it to get better? Or is it just a number because you say it hasn't changed much? Is this just a number that we're going to expect for the next 40, 50, 100 years? Well, I I do. And I do think, though, like we talked about, that people will use the word anxiety um, and not necessarily have an anxiety disorder. It is a really, really interesting piece. I I certainly appreciate your time today to chat about it. That is uh, Dr. Catherine Mancini, again, from the Anxiety Treatment and Research Clinic at St. Joe's. Thanks so much for doing this. Okay. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's a great piece in The Spectator today about a new chemical that is being added to Hamilton's drinking water. We're going to get to what that chemical is and what it does and whether you should be concerned about it in a moment. But before we get there, as I'm reading this piece, it suddenly pops into my mind how I thought, You know, I've never actually bothered to think through how our water gets to our taps. I mean, it does, thankfully. Thankfully, we live in a first world country and it's clean and we can drink it. Never dawned on me. Where do we get it? I mean, I know roughly where we get it, but what is the process for how we end up getting water into our house? Because I know it doesn't just appear there. Well, let me bring on Andrew Grice. He is the director of Hamilton Water. He is the man solely responsible. This whole thing is on him. He has no employees. He does all the work himself. 
I think. Maybe not, Andrew? Uh, that's certainly not true. <laughs> Got a lot of dedicated staff here. Uh, l- reading this story, it is... Um, I'm I'm reading a whole bunch of stuff about where our water comes from, and I'll tell you, it. I'm embarrassed that it never really dawned on me that, yeah, I know we're grabbing the water from Lake Ontario. That obviously makes sense, but it never really dawned on me where or how or anything else. So let's start going through this, because I think this is really interesting. We do suck up our drinking water, the water that's coming into our house from Lake Ontario, but where? That's a, that's a good question. Certainly, I do appreciate the spectator kind of taking a different approach with this. We we're talking about orthophosphate, and we'll get to that shortly. But, you know, a lot of the work that we do happens behind a fence, and the public doesn't often get to see it. So I kind of appreciate them walking through the process, and I'm glad it kind of spurred some more conversations. So uh, we do draw our lake, our water from Lake Ontario. We're very fortunate to have such a, a clean supply of drinking water. But uh, we do grab it uh, just off the shore, kind of out front of uh, Barangas. On the right. beach. And, but not right there. Like it's a long pipe that's going out into the lake. Absolutely. So the actual, the intake pipe is uh, about a kilometer offshore and is about 10 meters, uh, 10 meters below the surface of the water. Is that for some specific reason? I mean, is the water believed to be cleaner or less filled with sediment or pollution or anything out that far? Uh, certainly. So, I mean, the uh, proximity is based on, you know, wave action and the, the buildup of material from the wave action. So if you put it farther offshore, um, just, uh, you know, more consistent, reliable uh, drinking water we can pull into our system. How deep is the water out there? Like, could you have gone down another 40 meters or something, or is it right near the bottom? Uh, that's actually a good question. I'm I'm not sure off the top of my head. I do believe there is a little bit uh, more capacity at, at that depth, um, but uh, that is the uh, that is the proper depth for us for our intake uh, for a variety of uh, the sediment as well as uh, as water temperature. And we can't. And I don't know if you would know this, but we can't be the only city that's doing this. I'm assuming Toronto would be doing it, and probably Buffalo and St. Catharines and others that are along the shore of Lake Ontario. Yeah, certainly. So most of the municipalities in Ontario that uh, that border Lake Ontario are fortunate enough to have this water supply, and it's something that we certainly can't take for granted. You don't have to go too far to where uh, people have water challenges. For instance, Guelph is only you know 35, 40 minutes up the road, um, but they're on a ground-based water system, and they certainly have challenges uh, keeping up with the demands of their community. So we're fortunate to have such a, a plentiful supply just outside of our doorstep. Okay, so we have this pipe that's almost a kilometer out into the lake, 10 meters deep. Water gets sucked in to the, well, walk us through now what the process is. It gets, it gets sucked into the water treatment plant. What happens when it gets there? Yeah, so certainly the water comes through what we call our low-lift pumping station, and some people are familiar with that. It's the, uh, the, uh, the facility that's down near uh, Hutch's Marina, or sorry, Hutch's, uh, Hutch's down on the, uh, on the waterfront. Um, it's got a kind of a green parabolic roof um, that has a bunch of pumps in it that, uh, and also some screens. So it screens out any large material or debris that gets pulled in with the lake water. Um, it's kind of our preliminary process to remove any physical material. And from there, it gets pumped underneath the highway where it enters the head of our, our water treatment plant. Okay, so when it comes in, let's back up for just a second. When it gets sucked in, and I'm assuming in order to get water from a kilometer away, it's coming in with a fair amount of force. There's, there's a good amount of suction to be able to pull this in. Yeah, so certainly we have uh, we do have large pumps, and I think that's something that was visible in the in the paper today. I mean, the size of the infrastructure we're talking about is quite large. So the uh, you know the low lift pumps and the high lift pumps they they are big infrastructure, and they certainly do have the capacity to move a lot of water and to move it very quickly. So when you say then there are screens and filters and things, what kind of stuff gets filtered out? What kind of stuff is being prevented from getting in? What's being sucked? Uh, 
So certainly any large material that might be found out within uh, within the water course. So it's not uncommon for you know maybe small sticks and rocks and that type of debris to get pulled in through uh, through the intake. Again, it's a lot of force that's pulling this water in, so it will pull some material with it. So those screens are designed to uh, to remove that type of material. Um, it can be harmful for our equipment further downstream in our process. So we want to remove it right at the start. What is the state of the water when it arrives? I mean, is it, it's not clean enough to drink. I understand that, but is it clean water at this point? Is it silty? Is it smelly? Is it like, how would people see it when they saw it? Would it look like normal water, normal drinking water, even though you wouldn't drink it? Uh, so it does look relatively like uh, like what you would expect for drinking water. It is relatively clean. Um, it cert- depends on the season. Um, you know, as temperatures rise, it can have a, a little bit more of an odor to it, but it's not something that you would consider, uh, you know, very unappealing. Um, but uh, it's really more what lies kind of within the, the, the microscopic part of that is, is really what is the, is the larger problem for uh for us. Well, and yeah, and, and you know, my when I was thinking about this, it dawned on me as well that while we're pulling water in to be sent into our house, we're also, even though we're cleaning it, sending water out that we've done other things too that we don't necessarily want to think about too much. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we, we would want to be cleaning that out even though we've done an okay job cleaning it in the first place. You don't really want to have those particles and micro things sloshing around in your water. No, and absolutely. Like we, like I said up front, we do have a very clean water supply. We are very lucky, but certainly there is, a, you know, certain removal processes that need to require, whether that's physical removal for screens or whether that's through a chemical addition to help other types of materials settle out. Um, in order for it to uh, be safe enough to be sent to your tap, there certainly is a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes still. Now, is this all a moving? Um, an ongoing moving thing or are you filling up tanks that are sitting there to be treated? Does it sit there stagnate, not stagnate, but stationary for a while while you treat it and then it's pumped out or is it always moving through? Uh, no, that's a, that's a very good question. So we are, are quite fortunate, again, to have a, uh, a large water treatment plant. So we do not need to run our treatment facility 24-7. Um, certainly people are there, and it is various elements of it are running 24-7, but we're not constantly running our pumps and supplying the uh, the homes within the city of Hamilton. We have other reservoirs scattered throughout the city and pumping stations that are responsible for, I guess, delivering it more to, to your door. This treatment facility uh, is uh, kind of pumps it from point A to point B. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's a great piece in The Spectator today about a new chemical that is being added to Hamilton's drinking water. We're going to get to what that chemical is and what it does and whether you should be concerned about it in a moment. But before we get there, as I'm reading this piece, it suddenly pops into my mind how I thought, You know, I've never actually bothered to think through how our water gets to our taps. I mean, it does, thankfully. Thankfully, we live in a first world country and it's clean and we can drink it. Never dawned on me. Where do we get it? I mean, I know roughly where we get it, but what is the process for how we end up getting water into our house? Because I know it doesn't just appear there. Well, let me bring on Andrew Grice. He is the director of Hamilton Water. He is the man solely responsible. This whole thing is on him. He has no employees. He does all the work himself, I think. Maybe not, Andrew? Uh, that's certainly not true. <laughs> Lots of dedicated staff here. Uh, l- reading this story, it is, um, I'm, I'm reading a whole bunch of stuff about where our water comes from, and I'll tell you, it. I'm embarrassed that it never really dawned on me 
that, yeah, I know we're grabbing the water from Lake Ontario. That obviously makes sense, but it never really dawned on me where or how or anything else. So let's start going through this because I think this is really interesting. We do suck up our drinking water, the water that's coming into our house from Lake Ontario, but where? That's a, that's a good question. Certainly, I do appreciate the spectator kind of taking a different approach with this. We we're talking about orthophosphate, and we'll get to that shortly. But, you know, a lot of the work that we do happens behind a fence, and the public doesn't often get to see it. So I kind of appreciate them walking through the process, and I'm glad it kind of spurred some more conversation. So uh, we do draw our lake, our water from Lake Ontario. We're very fortunate to have such a, a clean supply of drinking water. But uh, we do grab it uh, just off the shore, kind of out front of uh, Barangas. On the right. beach. And, but not right there. Like it's a long pipe that's going out into the lake. Absolutely. So the actual, the intake pipe is uh, about a kilometer offshore and is about 10 meters, uh, 10 meters below the surface of the water. Is that for some specific reason? I mean, is the water believed to be cleaner or less filled with sediment or pollution or anything out that far? Uh, certainly. So, I mean, the uh, proximity is based on, you know, wave action and the, the buildup of material from the wave action. So if you put it farther offshore, um, just, uh, you know, more consistent, reliable uh, drinking water we can pull into our system. How deep is the water out there? Like, could you have gone down another 40 meters or something, or is it right near the bottom? Uh, that's actually a good question. I'm I'm not sure off the top of my head. I do believe there is a little bit uh, more capacity at, at that depth, um, but uh, that is the uh, that is the proper depth for us for our intake uh, for a variety of uh, the sediment as well as uh, as water temperature. And we can't. And I don't know if you would know this, but we can't be the only city that's doing this. I'm assuming Toronto would be doing it, and probably Buffalo and St. Catharines and others that are along the shore of Lake Ontario. Yeah, certainly. So most of the municipalities in Ontario that uh, that border Lake Ontario are fortunate enough to have this water supply, and it's something that we certainly can't take for granted. You don't have to go too far to where uh, people have water challenges. For instance, Guelph is only you know, 35, 40 minutes up the road, um, but they're on a ground-based water system, and they certainly have challenges uh, keeping up with the demands of their community. So we're fortunate to have such a, a plentiful supply just outside of our doorstep. Okay, so we have this pipe that's almost a kilometer out into the lake, 10 meters deep. Water gets sucked in to the, well, walk us through now what the process is. It gets, it gets sucked into the water treatment plant. What happens when it gets there? Yeah, so certainly the water comes through what we call our low-lift pumping station, and some people are familiar with that. It's the uh, the uh, the facility that's down near uh, Hutch's Marina, or sorry, Hutch's, uh, Hutch's down on the, uh, on the waterfront. Um, it's got a kind of a green parabolic roof. Um, that has a bunch of pumps in it that, uh, and also some screens. So it screens out any large material or debris that gets pulled in with the lake water. Um, it's kind of our preliminary process to remove any physical material. And from there, it gets pumped underneath the highway where it enters the head of our, our water treatment plant. Okay, so when it comes in, let's back up for just a second. When it gets sucked in, and I'm assuming in order to get water from a kilometer away, it's coming in with a fair amount of force. There's, there's a good amount of suction to be able to pull this in. Yeah, so certainly we have uh, we do have large pumps, and I think that's something that was visible in the in the paper today. I mean, the size of the infrastructure we're talking about is quite large. So the uh, you know the low lift pumps and the high lift pumps they they are big infrastructure, and they certainly do have the capacity to move a lot of water and to move it very quickly. So when you say then there are screens and filters and things, what kind of stuff gets filtered out? What kind of stuff is being prevented from getting in? What's being sucked? Uh, so certainly any large material that might be found out within uh, within the water course. So it's not uncommon for, you know, maybe small sticks and rocks and that type of debris to get pulled in through uh, through the intake. Again, it's a lot of force that's pulling this water in, so it will pull some material with it. So those screens are designed to uh, to remove that type of material. Um, it can be harmful for our equipment further downstream in our process, so we want to remove it. 
right at the start. What is the state of the water when it arrives? I mean, is it, it's not clean enough to drink. I understand that. But is it clean water at this point? Is it silty? Is it smelly? Is it like, how would people see it when they saw it? Would it look like normal water, normal drinking water, even though you wouldn't drink it? Uh, so it does look relatively like uh, like what you would expect for drinking water. It is relatively clean. Um, it cert- depends on the season. Um, you know, as temperatures rise, it can have a, a little bit more of an odor to it, but it's not something that you would consider, uh, you know, very unappealing. Um, but uh, it's really more what lies kind of within the, the, the microscopic part of that is, is really what is the, is the larger problem for uh us. Well, and yeah, and, and you know, my when I was thinking about this, it dawned on me as well that while we're pulling water in to be sent into our house, we're also, even though we're cleaning it, sending water out that we've done other things too that we don't necessarily want to think about too much. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we, we would want to be cleaning that out even though we've done an okay job cleaning it in the first place. You don't really want to have those particles and micro things sloshing around in your water. No, and absolutely. Like we, like I said up front, we do have a very clean water supply. We are very lucky, but certainly there is, a, you know, certain removal processes that need to require, whether that's physical removal for screens or whether that's through a chemical addition to help other types of materials settle out. Um, in order for it to uh, be safe enough to be sent to your tap, there certainly is a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes still. Now, is this all a moving? Um, an ongoing moving thing or are you filling up tanks that are sitting there to be treated? Does it sit there stagnate, not stagnate, but stationary for a while while you treat it and then it's pumped out or is it always moving through? Uh, no, that's a, that's a very good question. So we are, are quite fortunate, again, to have a, uh, a large water treatment plant. So we do not need to run our treatment facility 24-7. Um, certainly people are there, and it is various elements of it are running 24-7, but we're not constantly running our pumps and supplying the uh, the homes within the city of Hamilton. We have other reservoirs scattered throughout the city and pumping stations that are responsible for, I guess, delivering it more to, to your door. This treatment facility uh, is uh, kind of pumps it from point A to point B. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's a story that came out of Waterloo last night. It's a story about a youth hockey game, novice, eight-year-old kids. Now, it was a rep league game, so it's not house league. How much that matters, I think it matters some, but I'm not sure how much it matters. But it was a rep hockey game between Kitchener and Cambridge. In an a eight-year-old rep hockey game, when the game ended, Kitchener had won the game. But it's not that Kitchener had won the game that made news, because in every hockey game, someone's got to win, someone's got to lose. What, the, what made the news, what got this into the paper, what got everybody talking today, was the final score. Kitchener had won this game 41 to nothing. 41 to nothing. That means they averaged more than one goal every minute in this game. Now, this of course caused some people to lose their minds, but the consensus was not a consensus. Because if you're going to be angry about this, and I don't mind that you're, this is not a good looking score. This is not something we want to have happen. The question becomes, who is the bad guy here? Who's at fault? Who is the one who should be wearing this one? Where is our anger or where should our anger be directed when a kid's team loses 41 to nothing? Is it at the coach of the team that won for allowing his kids to continue scoring? Is it at the coach who lost for having a team that can't remotely compete? 
is it with the uh, the association for scheduling games between teams that are clearly not on the same level? I want to hear from you on this one. I want your idea of who, if, if first of all, you may not mind. You may say, you know what, 41 nothing. It's just a good character builder for the losing team. They'll learn to lose and, you know, object lesson time. All right. I, I'm not, I'm not there. I'm not of the opinion that somehow this is a silver lining in a dark cloud. I think no game, frankly, in any sport, unless it's football, maybe should end 41 to nothing. But who's at fault for this thing? I want to hear from you. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Same numbers for the quiz question. Who is at fault when a kid's hockey game ends 41 nothing? Now, a lot of people have been all over the coach of the winning team saying, look, that guy should be embarrassed of himself because he ran up the score, he stuck it to these other kids, he allowed his kids to keep pouring it on and pouring it on and pouring it on and embarrassing the other team. That's disgraceful. Well, just before we really dump this guy on the coals, it is worth pointing out, I think, that uh, a few things about this. The first thing is, as soon as the game ended, this coach contacted his own minor hockey association to alert them and say how upset he was by this. And you say, well, if he was upset, why did he let his team run up the score? Well, by by what we're hearing, he didn't really do that. He didn't really do that. At least it doesn't sound like it. When the game started to get out of hand, this coach says that he made his made it mandatory for his players on his team to pass the puck at least five times before taking a shot on net. No shots before it had been passed around five times. Uh, He told them every time they collected the puck after a shot on net, they had to bring the puck back into their own end. So leave this, you're not just going to keep pounding it on net and peppering the goalie. You have to bring it back into your own end and then restart and then have the five passes again. Like, it sounds to me as though this guy was doing some things to try to mitigate the fact that clearly his team was monstrously better than the other team. But does that, in your mind, does that get him off the hook? Is that enough for this coach not to be the bad guy in this story? Let me tell you a couple other things, because there are other things you can do. There are other things that you can do, and I don't know if he did these or not, One of them, and this probably by the sounds of it would not have had much of an impact because they're eight years old, first of all. You can, if you're playing at a reasonably higher level and the game is getting out of hand, you can have all your defense play forwards and your forwards play defense. At eight years old, the kids are pretty much interchangeable. I'm not really sure that it would have made all that much difference in this game. Another thing you can tell your players to do is... Rather than shooting to score, we want you to shoot to hit the goalie's crest on his shirt. Then it doesn't look like you're trying to not try, but the goalie's going to stop a few shots then. But again, they're eight years old. At that point, let's be honest, if you've ever been around kids hockey, even decent kids hockey at eight years old, they don't have great aim. They don't have the kind of aim that you're going to guarantee that every time they even shoot for the crest that they're not going to hit part of the net. Well, let me tell you a couple other things as we're talking about this one. Uh, First thing is, some people today, as I was talking about this with somebody, some people said, you know what should have happened? 
one of the two coaches, one of the two coaches, at a certain point should have just pulled their team off the ice. Rather than allowing this to happen, take your kids off the ice. Just don't even, don't even continue to play the game. Well, let me tell you, Hockey Canada has rules that says that if you are a coach of a hockey team and you pull your kids off the ice, you as the coach can face a one-year suspension from coaching. Now, this has come up before, more with the idea of, I did a story about this one time when a coach was worried that his kids in contact hockey were going to get hurt because the other team was so much more physical, so much bigger, so much stronger, and he wanted to take his kids off the ice and basically was told he couldn't do that. So that's not, that doesn't sound like it is really an option. You're not really at eight years old, even though it's rep hockey, you're not really supposed to bench players. So you can't sit down for most of the game, you're better players. So what are you supposed to do? And that's where this story becomes really interesting. Because I've heard a lot of people today online, in social media, in conversations, a lot of people saying the coach of the winning team should be ashamed for the way this thing went. And the more I looked at this, the more I thought, I don't know what he is supposed to do. I don't know what this coach is supposed to do to try and mitigate this when his team is so much better than his opponent and has asked them to do things to restrict the scoring and the other team just can't stop anything. To me, to me, the concern is not with the coach. Assuming, of course, that what we're hearing and what we're reading about in the story we're being told is legit that he did take these efforts to try and slow things down. If he did that, to me, the problem is not with the coach. The problem is with organizers. Who, who, who looks at... Let me back for a second. Let me tell you, by the way, as we're talking about this, the team that lost this game, that lost 41 to nothing. Let me tell you what the scores of their other games have been this year. 21 to nothing, 14 to 1, 16 to 1, 11 to 2, 15 to nothing, and 14 to nothing. Surely at some point, somehow, someone, some adult looks at this and says, you know what, this team may be in the wrong spot. This team is not competitive. So we have two choices here. We ask the kids if they want to keep going out there and getting throttled because that's what's happening. Or maybe we knock them down. Maybe if you're the organizer of the league, do something else. You say, this team is absolutely not in the right place. Therefore, this team should not be sticking around. That, to me, is the number one thing you do. When you've played your first three games of the year, and you have lost 21 nothing, 14 to 1 and 16 to 1. Seems to me that you have got a bigger problem than what the other coach may or may not do. And one other thing, the team that beat them 41 to nothing is a very very good team and part of the reason that you can part of the way you can prove that the team that beat the losing team in this case, remember I said they had three losses early in the year, one of them was 21 nothing. The team that beat them 21 nothing, well, they played the team that won the game 41 nothing. So common opponent. The team that won 41 nothing beat the team that beat them 21 nothing, 11 to nothing. There is the, the team that we're talking about is very, very good. What are you supposed to do if your kids are on the ice? If they are so much better than the opponent, if you've gone out of your way to try and slow down the scoring, they're eight years old, you can't 
completely, you're not allowed to pull them off the ice. You're not supposed to bench them. You've asked them to take steps. You also don't want to completely humiliate the other team by playing Harlem Globetrotters and just playing keep away. What's, what's your option? And who's to blame for this? Let me bring Paul. Oh, we lost Paul. Paul, please call back. I don't know if I pressed the wrong button, but you disappeared. We'll get Paul back in just a minute. Who's at fault in this case, or is anyone at fault in this case? Because there's been a lot of people who have been dumping on the coach and dumping on the team and dumping on the organization that won this game. And to my way of thinking, there have been some terrible, terrible scores in games, high school games and everything else. It was a football game recently that ended like 129 to nothing or something. Well, see, to me, again, you have to look at what the circumstances are. If you're up by that amount and you're simply running the ball trying to not do anything and nobody tackles your guy, what are you supposed to do? How do you deal with this and who is to blame? Let me bring Joe in first. Joe, how are you tonight? I'm not bad. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. What do you think about this? Is there someone to to blame here? Is someone at fault here? Well, this is an interesting scenario. I mean, um, I've been involved in hockey for 30 years at pretty high levels. Um, you know, if you, if you're if we are understand that the coach actually did what you said on the radio, um, you know, he made an effort, which is what I think is important. But there's a lot of other scenarios that we can look at here. I mean, we can even look at parents. You know, it goes back. In to, what sense, you know, Joe? Well, I mean, I've been involved. I played at a very high level. And everything's about get as many goals as you can. You know, there's parents that pay five bucks a goal. Yes, there are. Um, so we can take this in all different directions. Uh, but would you put the earth. blame? So you're right. Let me jump in for a sec. You're absolutely right about the parents. And when the parents are paying five bucks a goal for a kid, we don't know if that's the case here, but we know those exist. I agree with you. Those do exist. Is that on the coach? If the coach has done what he can to try and stop this, but mom or dad have told the kid, go ahead and keep scoring, is this on the coach? Not entirely, no. And I I would actually take it one step further, like you said before. I mean, the organization's got to step in and realize that potentially this team is not at the level. uh, What was the level by chance? Was it AAA? Was it AA? What was it? Novice MD. So it's a a mixed division. It's, It's basically AE, or lowest level of rep hockey you can have. One step okay, above house that's, league. And that's, that makes it even more interesting because, you know, every parent would love to see their kid play at a rep level, triple A, double A, whatever. And then you've got the AEs and it's for the fringe players. So they're dying to play. But yet if the team is that, uh, shall we say poor is, is, is not maybe the right word. No, I think that's a good level. word. That's a, that's a fine word because they're getting killed in every game. And, and I, it's not the kid's fault. They're just not good. They're, no, they're not, they're not good yet. They're eight years old. Fair enough. They've got, a, they've got a lot of development ahead of them. It's, it does nobody any good, including the team that ran it up. I agree with you. So let me, Joe, let me stop. I only got one more second here with you. I want to ask you this question, though. You are now the coach of the team that is ahead in this game. Beyond what he did, give me one other thing that you might have been able to do to try and get your kids to stop scoring. I would just say, look, I don't want to see any more goals. I want to see you guys move the puck around. Um, 
but on the same token, I don't want to embarrass the other team. And, and, and it's a fine line because you end up doing it anyways. And because they're eight, it's like, that's something I agree with you, but that's something you can maybe do when they're 14 or 15 or 13 and they have a greater comprehension of what you're talking about. I'm not sure it works when they're eight. You're, and you're hundred percent correct. I mean, I mean, these kids are just learning and having fun. And like you said before, you know, there's very little accuracy on their shots. Uh, their passes are off. I mean, it's, it's a difficult scenario. I would have to say if this coach made that attempt uh, with what you had indicated, then he did, he did what he thought he could do under the situation. I, I really won't, don't know much more what he could have done other than, uh, and you can't pull your team because you're 100% correct. I mean, I've seen a colleague of mine get suspended for one year because he pulled his team because of a different type of a scenario. So you cannot do that. No, Joe, I appreciate the call. Thanks for calling in. I appreciate it. Let me go here to Paul and hope I don't lose him again. Paul, how are you tonight? Good, thanks. Yourself? Excellent, thank you. What do you think about this? Do you think there's someone at fault in this, or is this just one of those things? Yeah, well, just to build on you, I think what's important, so so my son plays in this is in this league that, that this team plays in, and, and so the number one thing, and we played against them, the number one... You pl- uh, sorry, you played against which? The le- winner or the loser? The loser team. Okay. And so what I think is important to understand here is the fact that the responsibility lies directly with Cambridge Hockey Association. So... When you try out for this, parents play, the, your, your kid is in rep hockey. And by the way, this is the highest level. There is no AAA or AA or single A or anything at this level of hockey within this division of the alliance. So the highest you can play is MD for novice. Okay, so this is, there's no A, there's no A else. And what teams use these for, these teams, they're their feeder teams for as they develop into the next level and uh, next age group of single A, AAA, and AA hockey. So it's, it's becoming upon the league to have as many minor development teams that they can, or AE teams, to feed their system if they want. And so every parent going into this, when they paid you know thousands of dollars for this, knew that this was what it's going to be like, and that their team uh, is a little bit lesser than what the rest are. Now that doesn't excuse the other coach. Uh, I've coached minor hockey a lot in, in my life, and I there's absolutely a limit that you would do here uh, and, and he Paul, went far beyond. Paul, what would you, because I, again, I asked Joe the question a moment ago because he's also coached, he says, the coach says that he told the kids they had to pass five times before they shot. They had to, every time they missed a shot, they had to come back into their own end with the puck and clear the zone and do that. What, besides that, and remembering they're eight years old, what else Correct. could you have added? What would you have done if you were in that winning coach's spot to try and also pull them back? So the number one thing I would have done as soon as it got to be 10 15 nothing i 100 percent a team of that caliber and has a lot of discipline and the coach has a lot of um control over his team and any player that would have scored a goal over and above would have sat on the bench because it's about respect and fair play and now i get that we're we're in a very competitive league and it's a lot of craziness that goes on but at the end of the day the coach has a lot of discipline and i think a lot of what got out of hand lies directly with him. There is ways to manage it. And he could have shortened his bench and played with three players, four players, put four players on the ice and, and had less players. There's other ways he could have done. Okay, Paul, let me jump in one more time. Let me interrupt one sure. more time because I agree that it's competitive. I don't, I don't know that that was the case in this situation because I think, I mean, it, look, if, if we're getting a bad story here, if we're getting the wrong information and this coach was just looking to pour it on, what we're talking about is moot because then it becomes a story of an idiot coach. I'm not sure that that's, we're hearing a very different version, but the other part of this, and you, you make good points, 
But you also have to take into consideration the idea that you don't want to, while you're pulling back, you don't want to also embarrass the other team. So how do you do those things that you're talking about without looking like you're mocking the other team now? As a coach that has a team that is, I would tell you, one of the best three teams in the division of the 13 teams that play in there, he has, and Kitchener is a very, a very disciplined um, program. He has a lot of control over the kids. So for kids to score every minute, there is much, um, you have a lot of different ways that you could, you could teach children the right way to play on the bench rather than running up. You're talking 41 nothing in the hockey game. It's just unfathomable to think that a goal is scored every less than every minute. Um, and, and you can't control your team. If that's the case, then he is not a coach that should be coaching that level of hockey. Paul, I appreciate your call. Thanks for doing this. No problem. It's an interesting one. I, I say a lot of people, when they heard the score, if they heard this story, the first reaction was, that coach must be a giant idiot. And what I'm reading and what I'm seeing is that he did stuff to not run up the score. Now, Paul says there's more he could have done, and, and maybe there is. Maybe there is, but this is one of those interesting stories where I would like to actually see, I don't know if anyone would have videotaped this or not, but I've seen football games where teams are way up and they still throw the long pass. See, to me, that that's, that's when you start looking at it saying, what are you doing? Or in basketball, when you're way ahead and you're still running a full court press defense. There are times, there is a way to do this. There is a way to make sure you don't embarrass the other team. I don't know if that's the case in this one. It doesn't sound like it. What it sounds like to me, and I'd love to hear from you, Radley at 900CHML.com. It sounds to me like you simply have two teams that are so vastly disparate in ability that if it wasn't 41 nothing, it may have been 29 nothing. It may have been 35 nothing. Does that make it really any different? If the one team never touches the puck, but the puck doesn't go into the net as often, does it really make it any different? Seems to me that the the fault here, if there is fault, lies in where this team is placed in the league and should have been in a different league. But love to, as I say, love to hear from you. Radley at 900CHML.com. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900CHML.